but there's a scene in the original Star Wars movies. It's actually uh, become quite famous because it's the one where Darth Vader, and I know I shouldn't be ruining this for anybody. If you haven't seen Star Wars, the er earlier ones, you're just behind. So, sorry, I apologize, but spoiler if you haven't, um, because there's a scene where Luke or Darth Vader reveals to Luke Skywalker that he's his father, right? I can't do a good Darth Vader voice, but he says, Luke, I am your father. And Luke's, no, you know, and it's this real dramatic and major plot twist. I think one of the greatest in modern movies because they held off for so long. There's just, you go back and you see all the hints to it, right? But the first time I saw that, I just thought, no, he's lying. It can't be true. Darth Vader can't be Luke's father. This evil man in this, you know, white knight, they can't be the same people. He, his father was supposed to be a great Jedi. You know, there's all of these, these things that come out. Luke, in the, the film, and the um, original ones, he's, he's young, and he's um, guided by his emotions and his desire to help his friends, and he's impulsive, and he decides to set out and do something before he really knows who he is. He hasn't yet understood his, his trainers, his teachers wanted to lead him to the point where they could explain to him what had happened to his father and how his father had gone evil. But Luke decided he was just going to act before he understood who he was. And that's a lead into what we've been talking about with gospel foundation and identity, because this is a problem that we all wrestle with. There's times when we simply feel like we need to do something and we act and we um, get busy and we fill our life with stuff and we begin to define ourselves by what we're doing before we truly understand who we are. And as Christians, this is so foundational. We have to be reminded and go back to this over and over again. Being before Doing Before we know what we should do, we have to first understand who we are. And before we can understand who we are, we have to understand who God is and what God has done on our behalf. Too often, we are trying to prove who we are by what we do. So we flip the order. We try to prove that we're beautiful by the way we dress and the makeup we put on and our Instagram posts and all of those things. We try to prove that that's our identity by seeking it. We try to prove that we are tough by great athletic feats and working out. We try to prove that we are good by publicly supporting charities and letting people know that we're supporting these causes and getting our names on plaques. We try to prove that we're smart by belittling others and getting into silly arguments on social media to prove that we're more brilliant than the others. And we try to prove we're successful by making a lot of money and getting the best job and getting the titles and getting the education or raising our kids who will do those things on our behalf. We try to prove that we're successful in this way and we could go on and on. The truth is most of the time, Despite all of our effort, we feel anything but beautiful, tough, smart, good, successful. Throw in your adjective. We're trying to prove that that's what we are. And so we're scrambling and we're busy and we're frustrated and we're exhausted. Why? Because we're building on a foundation of our own making. We're trying to build on something that is shifting sand. 
rather than solid rock. So last week, we started off, or two weeks ago, excuse me, we started off by talking about who is God. Or no, this was last week. Two weeks ago, we started with an introduction to this series. Last week, we talked about who is God, and we said this is theology. Um, We're going to talk about what God has done today, and then next week, we're going to be talking about who we are. And finally, we're going to talk about what we should do. So the order is so important in this. And we said God is primarily known as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit. Despite our limited knowledge and our inability to really reach out with our mind and with our science or with anything we have to understand God, God has revealed himself as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. So today... We're going to be remembering that God is relational in his nature. That God's very nature is about relationship. And he created us to be in relationship. So we're going to move on to talking about what God has done. And when we do this, we're talking primarily about Christology. The study about the Christ. The study about Jesus. To do this, I would like us to read a text together from Colossians. This is from Colossians 1, 11, verses 11 to 23. You're welcome to follow along if you have a Bible with you. Colossians 1, 11 to 23. And this is, I should say, this is the Apostle Paul writing to a church in this letter. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil things, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we hear your gospel, we know and sense that it is your word. 
And it's your word not just for the church long ago, but it's your word for the church today and for us as individuals. May we hear your voice and your voice alone, we pray. In Jesus, amen. So as we look at our um, diagram that I'm using here, we're building on the foundation. So we said, who is God? God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as we begin to talk about what God has done, we say, God the Father, what God the Father has done is he has sent the Son. And we just read that in this text. He is the image of the invisible God. He's not some ambassador, but he is the Son, God in the flesh. If we want to know who God is and what God is like and what God has done, then we need to look at Jesus. This is how God has chosen to be revealed. He's not, Jesus is not just a prophet or a good man pointing to God. He's God in the flesh. And this is sometimes uncomfortable for people because they might be okay with the idea of God, but when it comes to Jesus, they want Jesus to be something less because they wrestle with the whole idea of the divine and human. And we talked about the Trinity and the mystery of that last week. And the, the mystery of God and humanity together is just as difficult. And so C.S. Lewis, who is you know, one of the most famous um, modern apologists, being someone who argued for the reasons behind believing in God, he said that the problem with people wanting to take Jesus and just say he's a good guy or he's just a prophet or he's a good teacher is that it, his words don't allow us to do that. The things that he said and taught don't allow us to do that because of the way the scriptures tell us the things that he said and did and the way people responded to him. That if he, if Jesus is not God, then he's either got to be a liar because he's making claims to divinity. The teachers of that day understood that. They charged him with blasphemy multiple times. So he's either a liar or he's a lunatic. I mean, let's be honest, there's been other people who claim to be Jesus since Jesus, right? And they, some of them are a little off, okay? So if you want to go that route, he could be just crazy and not lying, not trying to deceive. Or he could be something worse, and this is the route that some people in his day wanted to take. Oh, he's the devil in disguise. And Jesus had very strong words about that. He said, you can, you can say whatever you commit all these sins, but if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, if you call the works of God evil, this is an unforgivable sin. And that's a thing to wrestle with on another day. But it's strong language that Jesus uses when he talks about that. So Jesus has to be, from what we know from history and what he said, he's either who he says he is, God the Son, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's something worse. Those are your options. He can't just be a nice guy. And if Jesus was who he said he was, then we have to talk about what he did. He came to die for the righteous, right? Trick question. Wrong. He didn't come to die for the righteous. In fact, our scripture says it. Our scriptures say it. Um, Romans 5, 6 through 8 is a famous one that talks about this because it says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't come to die for the righteous. He came to die for the ungodly. 
Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the Son of God takes on flesh and he comes and he dies not for good people, but for sinners, for the ungodly. Are you still trying to prove yourself to God or to yourself? We talk about this often because I think it's so important that we check and do a gut check on this. We say God is gracious. This is one of the four G's we talk about. God is gracious so you don't have to prove yourself. This can happen on a church level. It can happen on an individual level. Paul wrote a letter called Galatians. We've studied this one before um, to the church in Galatia. And he was writing to Gentiles, people who had been outside the family of God, who believed in Jesus. And the whole church is struggling with how to prove themselves worthy of what Jesus had done by now turning back and obeying some of the old laws, the Old Testament laws. And Paul has strong language for them on that as well, because they cannot prove themselves. Jesus has accomplished that. And as individuals, it's the same thing. Um, the, the famous parable of the prodigal son, right? The, the man who has the two sons. And one takes half the father's inheritance while he's still alive. And then he takes it all and runs away to a distant land and squanders it. And all kinds of terrible things. And then he's broke and poor and he comes back. And the father accepts him. And as I mentioned before, it's a parable of two sons. And the one who was the good son, he was the one that Jesus was telling the story to, to the Pharisees, the church people, the religious leaders. When the younger son comes back and the father runs to him and embraces him and accepts him back as a son, the older son is furious. I slaved for you, he said. I've been serving you every day. You've never given me even a little party. And now your son who spent everything, half your inheritance on prostitutes and sinful living. He comes back and you welcome him. He's trying to prove himself. And Jesus told the story for that. And he leaves it open ended. We don't know what the older son does. The father, the, the father in the story says, all I have is yours. You've always been with me. I've always been with you. But your younger son was lost and he's found. We have to celebrate. And we don't know what the older son does. So this can happen, of course, on an individual level. On a, on a large level, churches can try to do this through um, their missions programs. I'm going to be heading to Cambodia this summer. Um, we're beginning to think about, I'm going with some of the missionaries we support. And we're going to be thinking about what our next steps might be as a church as we look beyond um, our local community, looking internationally to unreached people groups, people who haven't heard the gospel, where God might be leading us. So I'm going to begin taking a step to explore that. Um, By the way, if anyone else is interested, there are more spots to go. I'm not recruiting a large team this time around, but if anyone wants to go, I can tell you more about that if you feel like God is prodding you on that. So... We're going to be looking at that, but we have to be careful that even as a church, we don't begin to to define ourselves by our service Sundays or define ourselves by how much we give out in missions or how many missionaries we support or how many missionary teams we send. Because, again, we can't prove, we can't earn, we can't deserve what Jesus has done for us. 
And of course, churches often try to improve themselves through the three B's. I love bringing these up. Someone shared these with me a long time ago. Butts, bucks, and buildings. You know, how many people we have in our seats? How big is our building? And how much money do we bring in? And if we're doing all those three things well and they're growing, then we are successful. And it becomes a way of sort of proving that we've arrived or that we've gained God's favor. But God justifies God calls. God sends. We're supposed to be faithful. And faithfulness does, doesn't always and perhaps not as often as we think result in bucks, bucks, and buildings for churches. So we have to be careful. This is the scandal of grace. And it seems like whenever we talk about this, I sense in myself and I know I get from others a little bit of pushback. Because we always want to say yes, but... <laughs> Yes, that's true. We believe in Jesus Christ, but we have to do, right? We have to act. We have to. It's so hard for us. There is an imperative in the gospel, a go, an act, a do. That's the imperative, the exclamation point. That does exist, but it's only there because of the indicative. The indicative is the the fact, the truth, that God has already done all the work, that he's accepted us, he's justified us. Through Jesus Christ. And this is a scandal of grace. It's hard for us. And we have to, as we're doing, talking about gospel foundation, we have to stop here before we go forward. And we have to wrestle with this. It's, it's kind of like this. Have you ever tried to do work without getting very much sleep? I think all of us have had those moments, Right? We're trying to make it through our day, and we, for whatever reason, we have very little sleep. And sometimes we even get tempted. We think, well, if I just shave off a few hours here and there, then I can get more done in my day. I can accomplish more, right? We've all done that for different reasons. But the truth is, we actually end up becoming less productive. And they've, they've done studies on this. Despite the studies, there's a myth out there that, you know, we don't need as much sleep. We can just push through. There was a, a study that was done. Um, let me see if I can remember. This was done in... Oh, I don't, I don't know where it was done. I guess I didn't write that down. But there was a study that was done in 2003. And what they did is that they t- took three separate groups of people... And one group got four hours of sleep a night. One group got six hours of sleep a night. And one group got eight hours of sleep. And they were a mixed group of different people and different ages. And they went for two weeks. And each day the participants were given memory tests and also a vigilance test. And this was just as simple as when there was a dot that came up on a computer screen, they had to push a button. They, they measured things like reaction time and all, all these droopy eyelids and just sleepiness indicators and things like that. And what they found was that for those who were getting eight hours of sleep, there was actually no recognizable difference over the two weeks. But those who got less sleep, their performance declined steadily over time, even though those who were getting less sleep self-assessed themselves as being just as fine as they were when they started the study. So they couldn't even tell that their performance was declining by losing sleep each night. And by the end of the study, 
the six-hour sleepers, the six-hour sleepers, not the four-hour sleepers, the six-hour sleep group had deteriorated as much as if they had been up straight for 24 hours. That was what their performance was comparable to. And they've done other studies like this. The military has done these kind of studies too. And so just like this, where we can sometimes, um, you know, with our, our sleep, we can think, well, if I just cut off that time of rest and I can perform and get more things done. This is true also with us spiritually, because if we don't fully absorb and understand and grasp and live into God's grace, then we can't live out all of the imperatives, all the do's, all the serving that God wants from us. This is one of the reasons we gather every Sunday, because we feel it's so essential to be just listening to God's word, meditating on God's word, be reminded of God's grace. And so if you don't yet have this, if this is something you're still wrestling with, don't move on. Stay here. You need to be here. You need to fill yourself with God's grace before you can go forward. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And once again, in that scripture, we see a similar order. It's grace through faith for good works. That's the order. If we don't have the grace, we have to stop there. So the second one in who is God? God is the Son. And what did the Son do? The Son served us. Listen to this text from Matthew 20. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what did God the Son do? The God, God the Son served us in giving up his life for us on the cross. Do we fully grasp the meaning of this. Listen to um, the text I read this morning from Colossians 1. Listen to verses 16 and 20 of what it says about who Jesus is, who the Son is. For in him all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. So through Jesus, everything was created. For Jesus... Everything was created. It says he himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. So Jesus was before anything that we call a thing. There was Jesus. And the way all things exist is through Jesus. He's the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So here is Jesus, as as he's being described, as fully God, not part God. The purpose of all the things that we know and see. And what did Jesus do? He took on the form of a baby. 
in a poor family in the Middle East, in Palestine, grew up, spent three years of his life teaching his disciples his words that could be shared on, and then gave up his life on a cross so that he might conquer sin and then death and be raised again. Jesus came to serve and to reconcile us with our Father. And that's what verses 20 to 21 in our text say. Through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth. Reconcile just means to be made right, to make the relationships right again. We were estranged. We were strangers from God. And because of Jesus, we were reconciled. That's what the Son has done. And the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. What has the Holy Spirit done? God the Holy Spirit has empowered the Son. This one is sometimes hard for people because, you know, I think we want to think, well, Jesus was fully God. He was powerful. Yes, this is true. But also, if you read the scriptures, you notice something. Jesus was 30 years old when he was baptized. We have no records of him doing any miracles or doing anything that would, you know, point people to think that he was someone special. In fact, right after his baptism and he begins teaching his hometown, he's like, isn't this a carpenter's son? Aren't his mother and brothers with us? And they want to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> so it, he's not doing the kind of things that we often think of for those first 30 years. And so if you look at Luke verses uh, or chapters three and four, you can see the sequence. And Luke makes it very clear because he says in, verses, in chapter 3, verse 21, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him bodily like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son, my beloved, with you I am well pleased. And then if we go forward into Luke, chapter 4, verse 1, it says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, Returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he goes to the wilderness to be tempted. And then chapter 4, verse 14 says, Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returns to Galilee. That's where people start having a problem with him. Because there's something different with what the Holy Spirit is doing in him. In chapter 4, verses 16, he stood up and Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah that was given to him. And he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, let the oppressed go free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This same Spirit empowers us to believe. And this is what I think we wrestle with again because we want to think that there's something that we did internally that allows us to grab hold of that grace that God has given to us. But that's not the way the Bible explains it. It's actually an act of the Holy Spirit in you. The fact that you were sitting here listening to God's word is an indication that the Holy Spirit was working in you before you had any concept of what grace was and activated that in you. The same spirit who was on Jesus lives in you and allows us to believe. So we're, next week, we're going to be talking about you know, who we are then in light of these different truths. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, if you remember nothing else from all the years of Sunday school, if you had years of Sunday school, like some of us have, 
If you remember nothing else from your time of Bible study, then just remember the image that is meant to be portrayed by the crosses that we wear around our necks, we put on our walls and all these things. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died so that we might live. And I'm not saying just live like breathing air, but died so that we might live, fully live. It's the gospel. It's the foundation of the gospel. If you add anything else onto that, and when we're talking about salvation now, God saving us, reconciling us to the Father, you add any but to that sentence, anything and, it's not the gospel anymore. And that's the beauty of it. You don't have to be an expert in theology or Christology to know and understand this. Just believing is enough. So next week we're going to go on and talk about who we are then. What's our identity in light of these truths? Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you so much that um, you are who you are and for what you've done. Um, My prayer is uh, reminded of the joy that's coming from the kids in the room behind us. is that they would understand that too, that they would never grow up believing that somehow they have to prove themselves to us as their parents and grandparents or to this church to be loved, but that they are fully and truly accepted by you. And Lord, we are your children too. It's so hard for us because we want to prove to you that we are deserving, but help us to rest in your grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.